What's going on, Seven Figures Nation? Welcome to today's Seven Figures Club podcast. As always, our goal is to help give you the tactics, tools, and experts to help you build a seven-figure business. Only 5% of business owners ever get there. We have a guest today who is going to provide a lot of value in terms of what it takes to be a leader and create a culture. We have Stan Gibson. He's a corporate executive turned author, entrepreneur, speaker, and success coach. He has become highly sought after in terms of speaking across the country because he has a message that inspires and engages others to greatness. So if you're interested in greatness and building a seven-figure business and team, then Stan is going to help you out with that. He's been a longtime corporate real estate exec with over 35 years of leadership, Fortune 500 firms. He mixes uh, communication strategies on the athletic field. That's great. I was just uh, on another podcast talking about if you can build a team, that has an athletic background, I feel like you have an edge. And I know we've got uh, quite a few athletes here in our office to prove that strategy. Uh, Stan and his company, Oxygen Plus, has a tremendous passion for well-being as a consultant, helping businesses, leaders, and their teams go through transformation and positive leadership training. His passion for leadership inspired his best-selling book, Living a Rich and Intentional Life. And he's been married to his wife for 40 years together. They have a passion for servant leadership and a contagious spirit of enthusiasm. Stan, welcome to the show. There are over 32 million businesses in the U.S. and over 90% of them will never break seven figures in annual sales. So how do we as entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs break into that seven figures club? This podcast will relentlessly share the secrets, strategies, and tactics I've used to create three multi-seven figures businesses and bring in even more successful entrepreneurs than me to share their inspirational stories and tactics to success. You can create your dream business in life right now. So buckle up and let's go. Leo, thank you very much. Uh, I don't know that I could have written that. Uh, somebody had to write that for me, but I appreciate that. That. Uh, was a great intro, and I look forward to uh, having a wonderful conversation with you, my friend. I know it's interesting. Sometimes you hear your bio, and you're like, "Wow, that, that's a good bio." And if you, when you're busy and your head's down, and you're just working and and getting the next job done, uh, all of a sudden that uh, bio starts to grow, and and that's what's cool when you can make that positive impact. Uh, we love to find out a little bit about your background and and what led you towards entrepreneurship. You've got decades of experience in business leadership, etc. Uh, unpack a little bit of uh, your background, maybe some key events that led you to where you're at right now. Thanks, Leo. Yeah. You, you know, uh, probably around 12 to 13 years ago, I'll tell you what, my wife and I were having dinner and, yeah. you know, one of our friends came over and, and it's one of those guys that, you know, he's, he's just got it all together. He's a CEO of a company, a financial firm. He's, he's a foster parent. He's, he's got this wow. marriage ministry all over the world. It's just one of those, those friends you have that, you know, you're happy to call him a friend. And we talked for a little bit, caught up. We hadn't seen each other in a couple of years. And all of a sudden he walks away and about five minutes later, he walks back over and he says, you know, I, I just feel compelled to, to tell you, he said, you know, I've got cancer. And he said, I've, I've got like a 50-50 chance of living the next five years. And, and, and when somebody says something like that, Leo, you, you know, immediately your mind just goes into overdrive. Like, what do I say? How do I approach this? And before I could do that, he just looked at me and he said, you know, when death becomes certain, life becomes rich. And he said that again, when death becomes certain, life becomes rich. And Leo, when I heard that, um, you know, I had this compassion and he said, I want to explain that real quick. He said, 
because life has taken on this new meaning right now, he said, I'm I'm delegating all the things I should have delegated at work years ago. And in fact, I'm, I'm, I'm helping support the people below me now to elevate, to come into the position so that I can take more time off. I'm having conversations with my wife that I've never had before. And it's even taken it a relationship to an even deeper level. I've taken all my kids on separate vacations over the last 90 days to say, what do you need out of dad before he, he passes on to the, the next realm of life? And, and when I thought about that, I, it made me think, even at the position I was in at the time, why do we wait to get sick to get well? Why do we wait to have our businesses start to fail before we start to invest in ourselves personally? And because I've had three plus decades of experience as an entrepreneur, as a leader in Fortune 250 companies, I really then started to say, you know what, um, this is where I think um, you know, God wants me in my life is to start to work with entrepreneurs, to start to work with small and mid-cap companies, to start to embed all the research that I've done in my book, Living a Rich and Intentional Life, which is around all the science, the neuroscience, the physiological science around, you know, how do leaders, what separates good leaders from great leaders? Things that I always say, if you're not good at home, Leo, you're not good at work. If you're not good at work, you're not good at home. How do you get the package put together to where you're accelerating in both arenas? How are you sleeping well? What's the science around sleep? What's the science around nutrition? What's the science around productivity? How do you fit how do you fit eight hours of work in a four-hour workday? How do you get more out of life? So as I started working on all of that, um, you know, funny things happen in life. And about two and a half years ago, I exited the corporate world and started doing what I had really been doing the last eight or nine years, which was I've been speaking, doing keynote speaking for the last eight to 10 years. I've been doing motivational. I've been doing uh, speeches. I've been doing leadership speeches. I've been doing a lot of things on how to help people go through growth and transformation. So between speaking, between executive coaching, between workshops of helping teams learn to trust one another, that's a little bit of a long background, but uh, I apologize. But that, that's that's what's led me to where I am today, uh, working with uh, emerging and seasoned leaders, uh, Leo. Wow, that was a beautiful, very impactful message. I, I felt something remarkable there as you're talking about, you know, when death is certain, life is rich, and the actions you need to take to make the most of those moments when you're at the end of your life. And one of the things that I often say is, hey, when you're old and on your deathbed, you're you're not going to be able to do the things you wanted to do. You won't be able to create that dream business. You won't be able to go on those dream vacations with with family, with children, and and how important it is to live with, you know, a sense of maniacal urgency to get things done and and to build and, and delegate. One of the things that impacted me as I learned more about your background is this book that you wrote, this book called Living a Rich and Intentional Life. And just a, a few days ago, I was uh, in one of our Facebook groups. It's a pretty uh, you know, big-sized uh, mastermind group in, in terms of the type of entrepreneurs in that group. And one of the entrepreneurs uh, in there, a, a gentleman named Josh, asked the question, you know, I, I speak with a lot of people, you know, throughout the day, throughout the week as, as I'm uh, building and growing and, and speaking. And it just seems like the majority of people don't live intentional lives. They they haven't planned out, you know, how they want their family to be, how they want their business to be or 
or if they're going to be, you know, working a job where, where that's going to take them and they just don't intentionally plan out. What is it that so much of the population struggles with in terms of creating an intentional life and how can we help them? That's a great as, question. as leaders, as business owners, even in our own offices, right? We're leaders, we're entrepreneurs, we we have teams. I've got 30 employees here. How can we better serve them so that they're leading an intentional life and not just going through the motions, which is what unfortunately most people do? Yeah, no, great question. Very good question. And uh you know, one of the exercises that you know I work with a lot of leaders on and uh, executives is you know, we start to list out, I'll just ask a very, very point of fact, uh, you know, what are the priorities in your life? And, you know, everybody's pretty quick to start to come out. And, you know, of course, my family and, you know, they, they, they've been, you know, kind of say everything. And of course, work is towards the bottom of that. And, and, and then I start to ask them, OK, so let's let's just play that out a little bit. Where do you spend the most time? Where do you spend the most energy? And obviously it's inverted. They spend their most time at work. They spend their most time. Everything kind of lays out almost in an inverse effect of where they're spending their time. And so as we talk about that, we start to say, and, and, and I'm very quick to point out, living a balanced life is a very hard thing to do. I, it's, it's almost even something that I don't even, even recommend. Like anything in life, we have to go really hard in certain periods of time and we have to recover. The only way you grow is to recover. You can go hard, even if you work out, you know, because you probably do a lot of physical fitness. You know, high interval intensity training is probably the best way to train because you absolutely go hard for, you know, a few minutes and then you you give your body some time to recover. You go hard and you give yourself some time to recover. So one of the things I do is I tell people, you know, you can't always equate time to energy. Sometimes we say, you know what, well, I work 60 hours a week and I can't give my, my, my spouse that kind of time. I'm not talking about giving time. I'm talking about giving energy. Attention goes where energy flows. If you start to to just, you know, say that, you know, whatever it is, is that first thing that's most important to you, if you can start to give more energy there, what does that look like? Whether it's your faith, whether it's your spouse, whether it's whatever, it might be that simple, I love you, whatever it is during the day of a text, where you start to put energy can start to give you a balance and flow. And the one thing I would tell you is this, <clears throat> when I ask people to say what's most important, what are the priorities? The one thing they always leave out is themselves. They leave out the point that I always say that um, leaders need to be a little selfish to be very selfless. And I can just tell you from my own experience, while my faith is first and foremost, that's where I put at the top of my list, Leo. The second thing I put is me. And people say, that's a little selfish. Well, it is. Because when I put time and effort and energy into me, I then have the energy to spend on everything else, my spouse, my job, all the other things. An example that I have is that in 2018, my wife was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And it was very uh, thematic at the time. And, you know, we were had a lot of tears and a lot of things. And as we sat and thought about it, I thought, you know, this is where I kind of doubled down on me. And when people say, you doubled down on yourself, I said, yeah. You know, like any leader, the way we spend the first hour to two hours of every morning dictates how we spend the rest of the day. 
So that time became, you know, even waking up a little earlier, my workouts became a little more purposeful. My prayer time, my faith time, my meditation, how I prepared myself that first two hours dictated how I was able to take care of my wife, the things that we had to do at the time I was responsible for a team that we managed over a billion, billion and a half dollars worth of real estate worldwide. As leaders, we have a lot of responsibilities. So how we spend the morning in our routines can be very instrumental in how we become servant leaders the rest of the day. Routines are very big as we talk about being intentional, Leo. I'm very big on morning routines and evening routines. And so I work with a lot of clients. You know, tomorrow, tomorrow starts tonight. Next week starts today. Next quarter starts this quarter. Yeah. So we have to be very intentional carving out the time to work on the business, not just in the business. And that is personal and professional. Outstanding. So yeah, routines are important. And a lot of, of what we're talking about here is, is building a strong foundation. And I know you've got a very interesting story about that uh, regarding a, a football team that you were involved with. I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about that story. So it's 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 one of these stories that you, you know you can't even you can't even make this stuff up. So I played for uh, Eastern Illinois University, and I went there as a preferred walk-on. Which, if you know much about sports, it's you get to do everything that the scholarship athletes get to do, but you don't get paid for it. And that was okay because I went to this this university because I I felt like what this. There's some really good talent here. I can just see this, this program doing very well. So I went there my freshman year and got indoctrinated into college athletics. And, you know, they, they, they lost the first game. Then they lost the second and the third. And they kept losing. They ended up the year, Leo, going one in 10, being ranked one of the worst football teams in the country. And as any uh, anybody knows about sports, you don't go one in 10 and keep your job. So they brought in a, a new coach. And they brought in a, a guy by the name of Daryl Mudra. And he had the nickname of Dr. Victory. And I can still remember the first day we all crowded into this weight room to meet him for the first time. And Leo, I learned more about leadership in that meeting than I did in any classroom or any textbook. And I started to learn what people-centric leadership looked like. Because when he came in, he was very authentic. And he said, gentlemen, I want to tell you something right now. I know very little about football. Now, here's a guy who has the nickname Dr. Victory. Here's a team that went one in 10. And they hear a guy say, I know very little about football. He says, in fact, I'm going to coach from the skybox because I can see better up there. And I don't really... Yeah, I kind of, I delegate. I, I let my coaches do their job. And he said, in fact, not only do I let the coaches do their job, each one of you are going to be coaches out there in the field because you know if you're getting beat and you know if you're beating the other guy. So how can we make in-game pivots with strategy unless we know what's going on in the field? And when I started to think about that, I started to think about how many organizations really take a lot of the input from the employees so that managers can pivot weekly, not annually, but weekly. Hmm. And, and, and so he went through this process and he, and he said, you know, I'm going to surround you with good coaches. 
And so, so when he said that, I mean, for those of you that kind of know some of the names of football, one of the gentlemen that had just played quarterback actually at Eastern Illinois just a few years ago became our offensive coordinator, Mike Shanahan. And for those of you that don't know Mike Shanahan, he's a, you know got three Super Bowl rings, and, and his son happens to be the head coach of the uh, San Francisco 49ers. 49ers. Yeah. And he brought in Joe Taylor. And all these guys were in their mid-20s. Joe Taylor is in the Hall of Fame for uh, historically black coaching. Uh, so your offensive coordinator was Mike Shanahan? Yeah. Wow. 25, 25 years old. Unbelievable. 25 years old. And 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 and, and Joe Taylor and, and another guy, Joe uh uh Tierlink, who who who's who's in the Hall of Fame for, for NFL coaching defensive line. Anyway, he brought in this group that he was these these gentlemen were in their mid mid late 20s, but he knew how to surround himself with the emerging talent and he let them run with it. And, 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 you know, I'm going to get to the punchline here real quick. I told you that we went one in 10 my freshman year. We won the national championship that very next year. My sophomore year, they went 12 and two and won the national championship from worst to first. And, and, and again, I can still remember in that room, Leo, when, when he's talking and says, I don't know much about football. He was being authentic. He knew who he was. He knew he wasn't. He knew how to surround us with really good coaches. He knew how to draw from the players what was going on in the field so that they could make in-game pivots. And, and, and he said something else very interesting. He said, you know, I know that I know that you know the morale is down. I know that you had a tough year this last year. What could we do to kind of just help get everybody a better sense of feeling about themselves? And this was back in the 80s when uh, <clears throat> white shoes were were, were were only worn because people had black shoes and they put white tape around them. And, and 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 our uniforms made Penn State look sexy. I mean, they were as boring as could be. I mean, white pants, blue, whatever. All of a sudden, three weeks later, boxes showed up and there were some silver pants with a stripe down. There was these midriff mesh uniforms where the receivers got to show off their six-pack abs. There was these silver helmets from the blue that we had before with a panther down the side. And, and lo and behold, there were white shoes. And, just the, just the mood, just the way that he he treated the players was how I envision a lot of business owners not just giving anything and everything to the employees, but how do you change the culture? How do you change the way people feel about their jobs? And 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 it was just it was this whole experience was just very transformational, and it was a people centric type environment that was just amazing so 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 that's a little bit in in, in in you know just to give you a little context around this eastern illinois university oh my goodness you googled it i mean you know not too many years after that uh, tony romo you know came and played there sure a few did. years after that sean payton you know coach of the denver broncos was the quarterback there uh, uh Childress, the uh, head coach for uh the vikings for many years played there uh, Tony Garoppolo, Jimmy Garoppolo, I'm sorry, Jimmy Garoppolo Jimmy G. Yeah. Uh, was the quarterback there. And you start to look at this, uh, you know, Ryan Pace, the former general manager for the Bears. You look at this, this, this legacy that was created because of this one individual who had the humility to know what he did well, which, by the way, what he did well is he was a 
student of philosophy. He loved Greek philosophy. And he was able to translate philosophy into football. He knew that was his gift. And all the philosophies that came from that were very people-centric. So, you know, here's, if you don't mind, I'll just put a bow, a bow on this real quick. I lasted two years. After that, I realized, I mean, I, I weighed a lot. I was 6'6", 240. And to play the position they put me at, I needed to weigh about 270, 280. And I said, you know, not only am I not going to play on Sundays, I'm not sure that I'm going to get enough playing time on Saturdays. And so, so I was uh, asked to become an assistant head coach for a high school uh, 20 miles away for my junior and senior year of college. And you don't get to ask to be an assistant head coach if it's a really good program. Uh, so the same thing happened. I showed up for the first week. I mean, I got hired the first week of the first game and I was a defensive coordinator. We got beat by a team that was in the top 10 in the state of Illinois. We got beat very soundly, 89 to six. And I don't know if I was more surprised that we scored six or the fact that they scored 89, but I know that it was one of those situations where you scratch your head and you look at Dr. Victory and Daryl Muder and say, how can I apply these same concepts into this situation? And so we did a lot of that. You know, the nice thing about high school, sometimes juniors become seniors and they get better, but they embrace this philosophy that we talked about. We, we, you know, the new uniforms. We 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 changed a mindset. We did all the things that I do with my my clients now, and we got them to believe. And you know, a, a year later, you know, we played that same team, still ranked in the top ten. And I'd love to say that we won. We didn't, but we lost six to nothing, Leo. Mm -hmm. And 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 so we can transform our mindsets with the right tools, with the right people centric leadership. And so that is where I've kind of progressed to this point in time where I work with small small and medium cap businesses in how do we change mindsets. I was just on, on, a, on a call with a, with a client this morning, and I said, you know, what got you to this point of being five to seven million dollar in revenue client is going to take a totally different skill set as you become a 15 to 20 million dollar company. And we've got to start preparing now for that mindset. It may or may not be you. You may need to outsource, hire some of these, these, these things out, but you're going to have to take on a totally different mindset. And so, you know, those are a lot of the philosophies that I, that I, that I, uh, that I employ, whether it be business consulting. Again, I do a lot of motivational speaking. I also, you know, work with clients as it relates to how do we build high-performing teams and one of these things around teams is trust. That's one of the things I think that, you know, Daryl Mudra did with us at Eastern Illinois University. He helped us build some trust, Leo. And when I work with teams and C-suites or and or teams within companies, we work on trust. And you do that very simply by doing what Daryl Mudra did, and that's having authenticity. I do some uh, some assessments where we start to break down barriers and people start to become real at the table. And we have some conversations about what people do. What, what is the swim lane that you can be the Michael Phelps in? How can you be three one hundredths of a second faster than anybody else? What is that swim lane? And are you in that swim lane? And not that you can't perform in the other swim lanes, you can. But is there somebody else that you should have in that swim lane 
in addition to you or instead of you. And so I talk to people about not only what are our strengths, how do we be the fastest swimmer in that lane? As you may know, any of the things that make us strong also give us kryptonite. Those same strengths that make us who we are, if we're not in a good place, creates kryptonite. So we start to talk a little bit about what are our strengths, what are our weaknesses, and we start to talk about, about what is trust. And, 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 you know, that gets into the whole neuroscience around trust. Why do we distrust and why do we trust? So there's a lot of great conversation there. We unpack a lot. But when teams start to trust is when they can start to have healthy conflict. That's when they can start to actually become a more effective and efficient company. So those are a little bit of the things that I believe in. Those are the things that we talk about, whether I'm working with individual clients, whether I'm working in workshops, or whether I'm on stage. But uh, those are some of the main tenets, uh, Leo. Well, let's unpack some of that. So many value bombs that uh, Stan just dropped on us, everybody. So wherever you're at, you may want to stop if you're driving your car and write these down or type these out or text these to yourself. But when you have the chance to uh, play for a national champion football team like Stan did, and uh, your offensive co coordinator is Mike Shanahan. I mean, pretty amazing stuff. And like you said, Tony Romo, Sean Payton also were at uh, Eastern Illinois after uh, after you finished up college there. But you talk about empowering the team. And as a business owner leader, if you haven't empowered your team, then you're not going to get as much out of them if they're passively doing their job, but it sounds like your coach, as he came in, he said, hey, everybody is going to have responsibility, is going to be empowered to help us pivot during the game to you know, react to what the other team's doing and, and find solutions together. And it's not just the coach, someone up top, but it's everybody out there in the trenches. And when you can pass that type of message on to your team, to your employees, I think everything changed there because now they've got some skin in the game they're more responsible and and that's amazing to be empowered like that and then you talked a little bit about some of the values and principles uh expectations and talk about this uh this drive for healthy conflict a lot of leaders want to avoid conflict they don't want to talk about the tough things how important is it to drive for that healthy conflict and how can you come out of that conflict with resolutions, progress, and keeping everybody, you know, on the same page as a team? Yeah, that's a great question because, again, I think some of this comes back to self-awareness. Some of us are more comfortable with conflict. Some of us aren't. Those of us that aren't, just knowing that, having that awareness and how to approach it is, 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 is essential. Those of us that like conflict, it can actually be a weakness because we kind of jump in and, you know, we probably don't have a lot of self-awareness. So having that self-awareness is very, very critical as to how do you go about having that conflict. And I will tell you, you know, one of the things that I, I, I tell people, and I, and I probably say it to Ignatian, is, uh, you know, when, when leaders learn to coach, employees learn to lead. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so when people ask me, Stan, wow. can you help me be a better leader? I say, yeah. First of all, I'm going to help you be a better coach. What do you mean by that? So we're going to learn how to to ask questions we're going to learn how to listen i mean what got you in the position you're in today is because you were really really good at it really good at it but my guess is like most leaders when we get to a certain position then we start telling people versus asking people we start we start enabling by not holding them accountable 
So the ability to start to ask questions and the ability to, I will just tell you this right now, because I've worked with a lot of clients. How often do you uh, meet with the, uh, you know, people that report to you? Typically I get some very, you know, just, I don't know, just some answer that, you know, whenever we have a problem and it's like, no. So, you know, people don't know how much you, you, know, you care until, until like, well, people don't know how much you care until they know how much you care. Whatever that, that, that sentence is, you have to yeah. show that, that, you know, you've got that cadence. For me, when I was in a, in, in a corporate position, you know, I not only met with the people that reported to me, you know, once a week or once every two weeks, first five to 10 minutes, you know, I want to know about them. I didn't care about, you know, what was going on in the company. You know, what's going on? How are, how are things going at home? How are things? And you know, that sounds like, do I really want to get, you know, cross that line and, and go into that personal? You do. I believe you do. I, I believe agree. the more you can start to, 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 to realize that we're working with people, not robots. Yep. People have problems. And if people aren't showing up at their best, typically, as I said, it can be something outside of work. And just to know that and just to have some understanding, I think goes a long way, especially in a culture where people leave jobs all the time. When people know you care, typically you're, they're going to be on the battlefield with you. And you know what? It wasn't just the people that reported to me, Leo. It was, it was the people that, you know, there were some people that reported to my direct reports, two or three. Or, I might put those people on a quarterly cadence or every two months cadence. But I wanted to know what was going on in their life. I wanted to know more about, you know, what can we do to make your job better? What are we doing that, you know, that, that you're seeing that, that, that we should be aware of? How can we help you? be more effective. When you take on that servant leadership type of attitude and you start to ask questions versus enabling is when you start to see really important cultural changes within your organization. Leo. And so I oftentimes work with people around being a better coach. Uh, I was just on a, on a call with a client this morning and, and, you know, he, you know, he's, he's got a, you know, somebody a direct report that we know that for him to elevate, he's going to have to learn to coach better. He's going to have to to basically draw some lines in the sands and hold them accountable. But he's also going to have to realize that, you know, um, he's going to have to have more probably face-to-face real-time conversations in order for this person to grow without telling, he's got to be asking. He's got to be holding them accountable. So those are just some of the elements, but it really does take a lot of FaceTime, Leo, which a lot of people don't feel they, they have the time to do. That's so important. And, and that's something we try to do here, my partner. We try to meet with our, our team, our employees every quarter, because if you're not meeting with them regularly, then again, you don't know what's going on in their life. And the other thing is, if they don't feel empowered to share problems and issues that they're dealing with, you can't pivot. You can't create those types of solutions. And so I uh, definitely agree. You need to be working, you know, meeting with your leaders, uh, your direct reports every single week. It's It's got to be a weekly basis. And then in addition to meeting them every week, they need to be meeting, you know, with the team. Absolutely. And together, that's how you're going to make progress and, and get better. 
Now, one of the things you talked about is, you know, you learn to coach employees, then learn to lead. And you talked about the art of asking questions because you're right over time or even poor leaders just tell people to do things. And we know how well that works when we just tell our kids to do things without explaining or even just asking them questions that lead them to understand, oh, that's why I should do this or finding a better way to do it. When you think about asking questions, this is so important. I can't tell you how many mentors uh, have said, hey, if you want to improve the quality of your life, of your business, improve the quality of your questions. How do you improve the quality of your questions or teach others as leaders to do that when they ask their, their employees and their team, you know, these types of questions? Because there is a specific art, I find, to asking the right questions. And so sometimes it's actually finding the why behind the real question itself. And, you know, yes. a lot of times people come and they'll say, you know what, I've got, you know, X, Y, Z, it's, 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 it's a challenge. It's broken. Uh, we've got a client, we've got this and that. And, you know, we want to save time. So we say, well, you know what, I had that experience four years ago. Here's what you do. Go out and do it. That is not going to be, that's not finding out the root of the problem. That's not finding out the why. And so when I talk to a lot of leaders about coaching, you have to stop and pause and say, tell me more. You have to reframe it. Here's what I'm hearing you say. And you have to then start to throw it back as to, you know, that's interesting. What are two things that we could do to possibly turn this around? And then you have to be comfortable with silence. You have to be comfortable with giving this person the time to process and think, oh my goodness, they're asking me for my advice. They're asking me to solve it. Yes. And all of a sudden, they start to bring two things to the table, and you start to think about it. You say, you know, those are interesting. Probably have thought about it like that. And if you have something that might be different, have we ever considered? And then maybe you're able to give them a third option. But you're working with them. You're you're, 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 you're embracing a conversation that I realize takes two to three times longer, but I will guarantee you, once you've given them the tools to go out and solve it, they're not going to come back a second and a third and a fourth time. You're finding out the why. You're finding the root. You're asking questions. You're collaborating. You're actually creating a new leader out of just asking better questions. And no you've question. got to dig deep and you've got to dive and you've got to be comfortable with silence. I love that. So when you ask questions, guys, everyone listening, this is not a yes, no question, right? These are open-ended questions created to get people to open up. And then I love what uh, Stan just said there. He said, you have to be okay with some silence. Don't feel the need to fill that silence with more words. Ask the question and then sit back. You know, sometimes uh, I'll see Elon Musk in an interview. He might take 30 to 45 to 60 seconds to really think about a question he's being asked before responding. And that's good. That's OK for your team, for your you know, leaders and those you meet with. Ask them the question and let the silence sit there. Let them think about it. Let it uh, stew a minute. And then as they answer, then you can, again, ask more questions. And together, like you said, you're collaborating towards a, a joint solution and, and now you're creating a solution 
uh, based person instead of someone who just comes to you with problems or even worse, somebody who makes them. Yeah. And, and, you know, Lee, I think that's a great point because one thing I would tell, you know, those that are listening, be careful of asking why. When you ask why, why did you do it that way? Or why, why, why did that happen? It can almost become defensive. But when you ask, tell me more. When you ask what, how, when, other types of questions, why can sometimes be a little bit defensive. Why did you do it that way? It becomes a little bit of a defensive. What did I do wrong? And they, they're not exploring with you. So maybe be very careful around why, but be very open to tell me more. How? When does this has this happened in the past? What's been your experience with this? When you start to ask questions like that, it, it, it breeds actually a better conversation. So I, I do think it's just something to kind of consider because I know we always want to jump to why. Let's jump to how, when, where have you seen this in the past? What are two things? I always use numbers, Leo. Can you give me two things? Can you give me three things? Can you give me one thing that we should be doing different? And, and, and the other thing that I do too, here's a, here's a trick that I, I, I used on my teams for years. I always had quarterly uh, meetings with, with, with uh, you know, with, with my teams. And we did what I called, you know, start, start, stop, continue. And we did a lot of homework in advance of that meeting. What do we need to start doing? What do we need to stop doing? And what should we continue to doing? We did a full list of all the meetings we were having. And some of those meetings started out innocently and they turned into weekly meetings that were wasting everybody's time. We made a full list of all the correspondence, the meetings, everything that we were doing. What do we need to stop doing? What do we need to start doing? And what do we need to continue? What is fueling our success? So that's another realm, too, of, of, of helping foster good, good communication and collaboration with individuals or the teams. That's a, a beautiful question. Start, stop, continue. What should we start doing? What should we stop doing? What should we continue doing? I'm going to add that uh, to some of our uh, quarterly meetups. It's a question my partner and I can ask our team. That's that's a fantastic uh, bringing a full circle here, one of the final things that's so vital that people understand is ultimately their well-being. If you're not good at home, you're not going to perform well at work and vice versa. Boy, I can't tell you just how true that is. I mean, I'm a father of five kids, married over 20 years. If things aren't good at home, they're not good at work. But at the same time, I think sometimes people don't always realize things aren't good at work. They probably won't be good at home either. And so it's so important to understand that. And as, as a leader, as, as someone with 40 years of executive experience like you have, how do you help people to, to understand that and then maybe even incorporate their physiological, uh, you know, uh, well-being into that as well? So, again, we do. We work with uh, morning routines and evening routines. And, uh, you know, I can just tell you that uh, one of the routines – uh, I have is just a, pretty simply, it's a 10, 3, 2, 1. So 10, 10 is basically, I, I just quit drinking caffeine 10 hours before, uh, whenever I think I'm going to go to bed. The caffeine stays in your system. It has a, it has a great effect, you know, dopamine hit, you know, and certain things that when you have it and we need it. And sometimes it's not even drinking when you first get up, you know, if you can, drink, you know, if you can maybe wait for an hour or two uh, after you get up, you can actually make it through the afternoon without some of the uh, lull. So 10 hours before uh, bed, you know, that's one of the things I talk about is, you know, cut down the, uh, just quit, actually, the caffeine. Three hours before bed is when, I tell you what, um, you know, I'll, I, let's just say I go to bed at 10. 
I'm not going to eat or drink anything. I don't care if it's a glass of wine. I don't care what it is. But you know what? Up three hours before bedtime, it stays in your body, whether it's wine or sugar that stays in your system and your mindset. You don't get the, uh, uh, there's different types of sleep, REM, deep sleep, et cetera, et cetera. But you don't fall into that deep sleep because your, your body is, is, is busy digesting or processing. So I quit any kind of food or, or, or just an evening, you know, glass of wine or whatever, three hours before bedtime. Two hours before is when we start to shut down the technology. Um, so if we're going to bed at 10, you know, we try to shut it down, you know, 8 or 8.30. And then an hour before is is, is actually, um, you know, we uh, get into our melatonin state. We start to read. We start to do certain things that basically, you know, meditate, that start to kind of bring us into a more peaceful night. I will tell you this. The better you sleep, the foundation for health is sleep. And so I talk to people and go into great length about sleep, the types of beds, this, that, whatever. But when you sleep well and you wake up refreshed, your whole day is a whole different experience uh, than, than when you're tired. So I work with people around all of these things. I mean, I've talked to them about health and nutrition. You know, there's fasting that, that, that you know, I incorporate into my lifestyle. Might not work with yours. But we talk about the different ways to go ahead and to make sure we're getting the right portions of, of carbs and, and, and protein and fat and just things like that. So when you take care of your body, you start to show up at your best at work and at home. And it starts with you. And it starts with your routines, your morning routines and your evening routines. So that's a little bit of, you know, I, it, 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 it takes my practice into an area that most coaches don't go into because they they just haven't done the research. But I think it's so vital that it becomes a, a, a an initial part of my uh, my sessions with uh, with a lot of my clients. Incredible. Just so many so many value bombs, Stan, that you've uh, shared today. Certainly the well-being, getting into those uh, morning and evening routines and I think a lot of us are familiar as entrepreneurs. There's a lot of different ideas about morning routines. And, and I, I certainly have one that I follow strictly. But evening routines, that is very unique. I haven't heard many uh, experts out there explaining the importance of some of these evening routines. So that 10 3 2, one format that you just shared, y'all might want to just uh, rewind that one and listen to that again. I think there's a lot of gold in everything he just shared there. And at this point, Stan, I think the audience has just been blessed with so much amazing content, counsel, and, and 40 years of wisdom shared with them. And as always, this is not a passive podcast. We want everybody to take action towards implementing what they're learning. So what can they do? Where can they go to connect with you, your programs, your mindset, and learn more about everything that we've talked about today so that they can not only have just been edified in the last uh, 45 minutes, but actually implement everything that you've just taught. Well, thanks for asking. You know, if you go to Oxygen Plus Leadership, and that's the full word, O-X-Y-G-N-P-O-U-S Leadership. If you go to OxygenPlusLeadership.com and you go onto my website, uh, what it will do, and here's what I'll do, is I will give you the seven, uh, seven tips I have for being a people-centric culture. And if you'll reach out to me, I'll also give you another document that I have, which is around well-being. It's all the neuro and physiological science around sleep, around nutrition. Um, you know, what are the things that happen to the body? How? What are good tips and uh, uh, routines to get into? I'll give you both of those. And uh, so if you go to oxygenplusleadership.com, I'd love to do that. The other thing it will do, too, 
is I have a newsletter uh, that comes out on Thursdays, and I don't know much about newsletters. I know that that my marketing person tells me if 10 to 15% of the people open it up, it must be good. And I'm fortunate to have a 45 to 50% open rate, in, in, and it only lasts about two to three minutes, but it's, it's very specific about uh, you know, what is a uh, well-being tip? What is a leadership tip? You know, just certain things like that um, to kind of keep uh, people's interest. And I know we've all got a lot to read. Um, my book is found on Amazon. And uh, again, Living a Rich and Intentional Life. And uh, um, again, I love to uh, speak to groups, uh, whether it be corporate speaking, whether it be uh, coming in and helping facilitate uh, uh, quarterly uh, retreats. So uh, please keep me in mind. And uh, I hope you've enjoyed this and uh, got something out of it. And I'm always open for just a phone call. I never keep score in life. It, I just don't. Um, if it's nothing more than just a couple of minutes, just to say, I've got something, you know what, we can talk about it. And I hope you've been blessed with it. And uh, if not, I understand. So anyway, that's just how I'm, I've uh, been wired to be a servant leader as well, Leo. Beautiful, everyone. So that's oxygenplusleadership.com, oxygenplusleadership.com. Right at the top of the website, you can uh, take your leadership skills to the next level and uh, Click on that free download, How to Uncover the Seven Essential People-Centric Traits, which I'm going to be doing right now as we speak. Stan, again, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I know the audience did as well. Thank you. Thank you, Leo. Everybody have a blessed day. I really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you. Are you looking for more seven-figure secrets, content, or even how you can launch your own recession-proof business? Then check out sevenfigures.com. That's the digit seven, F-I-G-U-R-E-S.com, where we share more videos, stories, strategies, funding solutions, entrepreneurial education, and even the secret business type that's recession-proof. Thank you for listening, and if you're finding value in our podcast, please give us a five-star and invite others to join the club.